Well, welcome to um, a, a unique format for Build. Uh, we've been on hiatus for a little while, and now we are back, uh, albeit digitally. Um, today's lesson is on Discipline 1, and that is the, on the area of the heart. And the lesson is four questions for my heart from the book of Proverbs. Um, we'll be looking at what the book of Proverbs has to say about the heart. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about uh, the book of Proverbs. We need to be mindful of just how a proverb works. Uh, one author said that a proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom, artfully crafted to be striking thought-provoking, memorable, and practical. Proverbs make observations about the world and paint memorable and evocative images in very few words about what wise living looks like. Proverbs are wonderfully successful at being what they are, and that is a proverb. But we should take care to realize that proverbs are, are different than promises of God. And one author said, Proverbs convey pithy points and principles, not precarious particular promises. I like that. So when a proverb doesn't hold true in a given circumstance, it's not a failed prophecy or a failed promise of God. No, the book of Proverbs by design lays out pointed observations meant to be memorized and pondered but not always intended to be applied across the board to every situation without qualification. So one quick example to illustrate this before we dive in. If you turn to Proverbs 16.7, Proverbs 16.7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The principle is evident our relationship with God is more important and determinative than our relationships with people. Yet, if we press these words into a promise for our here and now situations, we can run into tremendous grief. right? Or used wrongly in the counsel of others, we can cause tremendous grief in others. Does this verse demand that we assume that we must be displeasing God if someone hates us? Of course not. Or does God's favor mean that all relationships will be warm and trouble-free? Of course not. Right? The rest of the Bible shouts out the answer. And all we need to do is think of Jesus. Uh, no man was more pleasing to God, but no man was more wrongfully hated and despised. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that Solomon sees as he looks around the world is that the expected results of wise living can often be overruled, right? They can be overruled by God's sovereignty. They can be overturned or frustrated by the sinfulness of man. And while some Proverbs can certainly contain clear propositional truths, most Proverbs are better understood as truisms. They describe general truths about the way the world works but aren't intended to hold true in every specific circumstance. And we need to understand Proverbs alongside the rest of our wisdom literature, Job and Ecclesiastes, right, are, are full of examples where one might say, see, 
The evil man doesn't get what he deserves, and the righteous man only receives injustice. See, Proverbs can't be true. And we we want to understand that all the wisdom literature books in our Bibles complement one another and can be understood in light of one another. So we want to keep Proverbs in their proper place. And from the book of Proverbs, we can see what wise living looks like. Um, We should not despair when what we observe in life isn't exactly what we see in the book of Proverbs. And when they don't seem to match up, books such as Job and Ecclesiastes are there to help us understand life in a sinful world with a sovereign God. With that in mind, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for your wisdom that you have recorded for us in your word. Uh, We know that your son has become true wisdom for us. Lord, we pray as we behold your word that we would see more clearly what wise living would look like and and what we need to learn about our own hearts from your word. In your own name we pray. Amen. So as we look at what God says about the human heart in the book of Proverbs, we'll see that God's wise assessment of the heart should lead the believer to ask four questions. Uh, Number one on your outline is the first question, do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? There's a fill in the blank there. Do I value God's assessment of my heart? So whose assessment of your heart do you value most? What you see about your own heart? Or what God says about your heart? On your page there, we have Proverbs 20, verse 9, which reads, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Right, Proverbs 20, verse 9 is in the form of a rhetorical question that assumes a very specific answer. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? Well, the implied answer is, no one. The statement is a wise Old Testament believer advising his son that no one can claim in any situation in life to have total or complete purity of heart or motive. Right, The heart, uh, the inner man, always has some corruption in it due to sin. And that's just the, that's just the way it is. Um, This is what is discussed and has been discussed when we've looked in build at that trifold diagram of man, right? The word of God reveals that your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your deeds, your desires, all of them, each of them is mixed. You know, every thought, the word of God shows that the one in Christ has the ability to be influenced by truth and by good desires that are pleasing to the Lord as well. But at the same time, under the influence of the flesh and sin, you can't look at your thought life and say, that was a completely pure motive for doing something. I'm even thinking of my own life and I certainly had a lot of good reasons, and I think God honoring reasons why we wanted to buy the house that we bought. We want to be able to use it for ministry. 
But what I can't see at the heart level is those competing desires, those desires that maybe I wanted to have a bigger house than my, than my brother or something that's, something that's going to satisfy my ego. Um, I, I may not have been conscious of that, but do I have the awareness that there are competing desires and motives going on in my heart because I'm mixed and we live in a mixed condition? And this really might be shocking. As sinful men, we, we know this. Um, and we know that we really can't claim to have a completely pure motive for something. And we know the following, that we know how easily it is that we can get bent out of shape when someone questions our motives. And I'll tell you firsthand that in my sinful condition, when I feel like my motives are being questioned, maybe when I feel like my wife is questioning my motives, my heart is often so sinfully inclined to rush and to defend the purity of my motives. In fact, I will sin against my wife in an attempt to convince her of the purity of my motives. Right? That's the deception of sin and of my own heart. But our motives need to be questioned. First and foremost, by ourselves. As we enter into conversations with others, we need to be aware that our thoughts and our motives and our hearts, our inner men, are not pure. Right? We are not pure. We're mixed. And remembering this will transform our relationships. And this isn't to say that we can't think right thoughts. You can. Right? We can have right thoughts. Uh, we can read the word and think God's thoughts after him. But in terms of what we say and what we choose and how we're motivated, we have to be very careful about what we say and about how we assess our own hearts. Let me give you an example. Go over to the New Testament and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says it this way. Paul was being scrutinized heavily by the Corinthian church, and he says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he had examined himself, and he wasn't aware of anything that was impure. But notice what he says afterwards. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. I'm not qualified to be my own judge. Right, so what is he admitting? I can't see impurity, but that doesn't mean that I'm guiltless. Verse 4 continues, But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. There's things going on, Paul says, in the motive and in the heart that we're trying to get to the bottom of and we are just not able to. And there will be times when you'll say, I just can't see that there would be any sin in this motive and in this decision or in this pursuit. But that doesn't mean you're acquitted. That doesn't mean you're guiltless because you can't see it. Go to James 1 by way of reminder for some examples of how we should be thinking 
and how and we will allow scripture to help us think rightly in regards to this. Uh, James 1 verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James says it is possible to be deceived at the heart level. And that's a mixed condition. Nobody in heaven is being deceived by their heart. But we can be. But also notice the connection that James sees between the heart and a man's speech. An unbridled tongue is the evidence of a deceived heart. And turn now to James 2 verse 4. Have you made not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Right? It is possible to have evil motives as a believer. So to further demonstrate this, turn ahead to James 3, verse 9. How do we know that James includes believers in this? While discussing the tongue, James says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. That is a mixed mouth. Right? Read on. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Notice something very interesting in this passage. James includes himself in this when he says, We curse men. And then notice how he addressed his readers, my brethren or my brothers. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to believers. In the opening of the book, he calls for these believers to find joy in their trials. They've been scattered and need to be encouraged. And here they're needing to be instructed and told that it is possible for believers' mouths to speak good things and to speak bad things. It's possible for believers to have a mixed mouth. And where does a mixed mouth come from? Right? James 1.26 reveals that the unbridled tongue was evidence of a deceived heart. Luke 6.45 says that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. A mixed mouth flows out of a mixed heart. It's not a mouth problem. It's a heart problem. Evil can reside in the heart of a believer. And if you have a difficult time controlling your speech when speaking with your wife or with your children or your parents or roommates, the solution isn't to attempt to simply rein in your words, to bridle them. Right? It's the heart that needs to be addressed. The man who has bridled his tongue has actually bridled his heart. So how is your speech? What does it reveal about your heart? Do you value God's assessment of your own heart more than your own? Listen, we are in an infinitely better position in Christ now than we ever were before. Right? There is, before, there was nothing in our heart that was pure, ever. There was no motive that was ever honoring to Jesus Christ before Christ saved us. Even the good that we might have done in feeding our children as unbelievers... It was a Jesus-less motive. And even though it was good, it didn't bring glory to Christ because Jesus wasn't at the center of it. 
But that is what we used to be. But now it is so much better. There is the possibility of good things and good motives. But what we see in Proverbs 20 verse 9 is that to be able to claim now that this heart of mind is completely empty of any impurity is a dangerous one to make. And it is to misunderstand what it means to live in the mixed condition. So what shall we do in response? Right? Each one of us needs to hold an appropriate suspicion over our own hearts because of this very wisdom from God. Who can say, I've cleansed my heart from sin? We tend to gravitate towards one or two extremes in this area. Some people will gravitate towards never, ever, ever finding anything good at any time, at any moment, at any place in our own hearts. Right? There is never anything good. I, I agree with Paul, we're in that I am. Right? This man is a man that needs to be encouraged. Uh, to be encouraged by passages such as Romans fifteen fourteen, You can write that down. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourself are full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to also admonish one another. Right? You have been filled in Christ with a goodness that makes you able to care for people in the body. And you have something to contribute to people around you in the body of Christ and in small group. Avoid this extreme of thinking there is never ever anything good in anything I've ever thought or done. But what's the other extreme? It's somebody being prone to say, my motives are pure. Don't question my motives. They themselves don't even question their own motives. And that person is trusting in their own assessment of their heart. Watch out for this. Right? Especially in your own hearts. Watch out for it when you're talking with your wife or your children, your roommates, your parents. And you're ready to jump to defend yourself, your motives and your actions. What does it say about the character of a man who exercises a self-control to not rush to defend his motives. But, but what if they're wrong? I have to clear my name. They're attacking my character. But what if they're right and you just can't see it? What did Jesus do? Isaiah 53, 7, on the cross, Jesus was wrongly oppressed, wrongly afflicted, wrongly accused, and he didn't open his mouth. We need to be influenced by truth to navigate between these two poles. It is wise to say, like Paul, as far as I can tell, I can't see what the impurity of my motive is. But that doesn't mean that I don't have it. In fact, let's open scripture together to help me see what I might not see on my own. God's assessment alone is the one to value. The next verse you have under question one is Proverbs 21, verse two. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the hearts, right? This is the kind of the theme of the book of Judges, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And you know how this feels, don't you? Right, when every man's way is right in his own eyes, 
Right? How many times have you made your decision in your mind and you're telling somebody, telling someone else about it, maybe your wife, and you're convinced this is flawless. This is a good decision. I've thought through this. This is right. I mean, you've got the first part of this verse down without anyone else teaching you about it. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. Right? We don't do things because we think they're wrong. We do things because we're convinced they are the best for us. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. And sometimes it just seems impossible that the path you've chosen is not the right path. Your self-assessment was at the extreme. And we are far too easily impressed with our own ability to choose the right path to walk or to make the right choice or take the appropriate action. But in this verse, what is it that our eyes are looking at in the first part of it? Right? They're looking at the way, every man's way or his path is right in his own eyes. He's looking at his choices and his actions. Right? Our eyes look at what we're doing and how we're going along. But what is Yahweh weighing? Our hearts, the inner you, the inner me. God is looking at the inner man throughout our decision-making process. And it is his sight that is far more trustworthy. And it's easy for us to become unacquainted with our hearts throughout the day, to forget about all the evil machinations that are going on within our own hearts at any moment. But God is always weighing the heart, and we need to value his assessment of us, as I will only ever acquit myself, and so will you. Move, on, move ahead to Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six on your outlines. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Trusting your, in your own heart in this verse is contrasted with what? Walking wisely. There's a contrast here, but trusting your own heart and walking wisely. Take a look at the passage and ask yourself, what does this proverb imply about the outcome for you if you do not trust in your own heart? He who walks wisely will be delivered. I'm sorry. What does the... I, I, I'm giving you exactly what the verse says. Let me ask the question again. What does the, this proverb imply about the outcome for you if you do trust in your own heart? If he who walks wisely will be delivered, what is the opposite of being delivered? He who trusts in his own heart will not be delivered. He will be left to endure the coming judgment. He is trapped and in need of deliverance. So trusting in your own heart can actually lead to entrapment. Our hearts are capable of good, but they're also capable of deception. And trusting it will lead to being trapped and in need of rescue from a circumstance that has been created by our own foolishness. The question for you then, and this is really a caution... Do the results always reveal the heart condition? Let me ask it another way. Does walking wisely always guarantee deliverance? 
And, and, of, and the answer to that would be no. We need to be careful that we don't take a passage like this and think, you know, I experienced good results. And God has appeared to bless that decision, so my heart must have been pure. Right? Remember, Proverbs is, is written in a way that is generally true, and they don't describe the things that, the way that things are in every circumstance, every single time during the course of our lives without exception. But it is generally true that if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. But there are times when Job was humbled, and he didn't get lifted up for a long time. His deliverance was not immediate, so don't simply look to the results to evaluate or justify trusting our own hearts. The foolish, Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-six says, trust in their own heart. But what about Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, next passage on your outline? Trust in Yahweh with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And here's just the clear positive command concerning your inner man as a believer. What is it? Gather up all that you are inwardly, your whole heart, all of your heart, before God and trust in Yahweh. And here's the clear negative command concerning your inner man as a believer. Do not lean on or trust in your own understanding. Why? The prior verses. As you move outward from yourself to the path that you have chosen from your heart, you still need to acknowledge God as you walk. Solomon intends to make it clear that for the Old Testament believer, there should always be a looking away from self to God at the heart level. And it is generally true that God will make your path straight when you do so. You may have learned or memorized this verse as a child, like I did. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and he shall direct thy paths. Uh, the verb here is probably best translated, and many of your translations probably have it this way, is to make straight. The idea here is not trust God and he will lead you down the right paths or direct you to the right paths. Rather, no, if I trust God, or, or it's, and it's not that, if I trust God, I'm going to know what to do in every situation because God will direct me. Some have taken this passage to say that. Maybe even thought, he'll even help me choose the right path. Right? Contrary to how we might have grown up thinking about this passage, it actually is, has nothing to do with God mystically revealing his will for you and helping you make the right decisions if you trust him. Right? The idea in Proverbs 3 is not about choosing the right path, Notice in this particular passage, you've already chosen a path and you're actually going down that path. You're already, you already have a way or a direction that you're going. In fact, you might have chosen any number of paths. Notice the verse says, in all your ways in all, or in all your paths, no matter what path you find yourself on, you must trust the Lord. And on any of these paths, there are potentially obstacles. And probably some, some obstacles you can see and some you can't. 
And while you're traveling this potentially dangerous path or way, this command comes. Trust Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And then what does Yahweh do? Yahweh smooths the path of the wise man who acknowledges and trusts in him with each and every step. He makes that path straight. He removes obstacles from the path that might otherwise have hindered him if he had trusted himself as he walked down that path. Remember what we said earlier about how trusting in our own heart can lead to impairment or entrapment? The opposite of deliverance? Well, similar ideas here. As you go down your chosen path, if you are doing it trusting your own heart, you are going to run into traps and obstacles as you go down that path. But Yahweh is going to remove some of those traps and obstacles. He is going to smooth the path if you're trusting in Him instead of your own heart. Sure, there will still be obstacles. We live in a fallen world and there will be obstacles as a result of God's sovereignty and man's sinfulness. But don't let it be obstacles that exist solely because you trusted in your own heart. So be careful of your own assessment of your own heart. If you trust in your own assessment of your heart, something has gone wrong. You need to trust God's assessment of your own heart. And what is he giving you to do that? How about Hebrews 4, verse 12? How can you ever judge the thoughts and intentions of your own heart? How can you rightly assess them? What has God given to us? Hebrews says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division and soul of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to assess it your own heart? Lay it before God's word, which is able to decipher the thoughts and intentions of your heart that might be blind to you. And it's important to measure your own heart, but not so that you would trust it, but so that you would look away from it and trust in Yahweh and acknowledge him in all of your ways. And by the way, if the heart was always pure, why would you need God's word to discern its thoughts and intentions? And it's because it's not. So we have four questions to ask our hearts from the book of Proverbs. Number two, on your page, and this will certainly not take as long as the first one. The second question is, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? Right, we have three Proverbs for you here. Proverbs 6.25 Proverbs 7.25 and Proverbs 23.17. Notice these three commands and we'll look at all three of them together. Proverbs 6.25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Don't let, her, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Do not let your heart... Envy sinners, but live in the fear of Yahweh always. Solomon's clear expectation for his son is that his son would control his own heart, that he would control his heart, he would shepherd it. Control yourself in what sense, Solomon? 
Don't desire your be- her beauty in your heart. That's on you, son. Don't do it. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't look over there. Control your heart. Have your heart look over here. Don't let your heart envy sinners. You're in control of your heart. When your heart is envying sinners, you're doing it. Tell your heart to stop doing that. So what do these verses imply about the believer's heart? These verses imply that the believer's heart is wayward. And it needs to be carefully watched over. It's prone to wander. Are you familiar with that hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When you hear that hymn, doesn't it just ring true in your own life as you think of your own heart's proclivities and propensity to run after sin? Right? You know by experience it's true. Our hearts are wayward. But guess what? It's your job to control your wayward heart. I can't just blame my heart. I need to control it. You're responsible when it's out of control. You're accountable to keep it under control. You're not to trust it. And this is the reason for the command in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And write down this one other proverb. I know this is not on your outline, but um, go ahead and write this one down as a fourth. Proverbs 23, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Right, so there is Old Testament wisdom for your heart. Watch over your heart. Shepherd your heart. Direct it. Control your heart. If you blindly follow what commands come out of your heart, you might do some good things, but you might find yourself and might lead yourself astray as well as experience some significant consequences, right? you must control your heart, not let it control you. And that means, as Proverbs twenty three nineteen states, that it needs to be directed. It doesn't naturally go down the right path. It needs directing. It needs controlling. Are you more inclined to carefully control your heart or to blindly follow your heart? And remember Proverbs twenty eight twenty six, as we already looked at, he who trusted in his own heart is a fool. Right, here's another passage not on your handout. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight. Like a city that is broken into without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Just as a city without walls is extremely vulnerable to being broken into and besieged, so are you vulnerable to temptation when you have no control over your inner man. Question number three for our hearts is, do I know in what way my heart is vulnerable? Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? To be effective in watching over our heart, we need to be aware of its weaknesses. How is it vulnerable? And here are two proverbs that show how the heart can be weakened, be brought down, and made sick. Proverbs twelve twenty five. it's on your outline. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Do you know when your heart is vulnerable? 
What impact does the sin of anxiety or worry have on your heart? Right? It's weighed down. It sinks. It's like a stone under the weight of sin. One commentator said, The soul can sink to the depths of despair where it can no longer apprehend gospel comforts, where it can no longer offer thanks to God. Has your own heart ever felt like this? And perhaps it feels like it now. Perhaps your job is in jeopardy. Maybe perhaps the first time in your life, you may not know where your next meal is coming from. You don't know if the grocery stores are going to have food. You don't know if the next check's going to come. Maybe you're fearful of getting sick. So let's talk then a little bit about anxiety for a second. And what is anxiety? Why is anxiety a sin? When we are anxious, we are trusting more in ourselves than the Lord. Let me say that again. When we are anxious, we are trusting more in ourselves and our own hearts and our own abilities than in the Lord. What do I mean by that? Let's look at our passage. But let's start from the end first. A good word makes the heart glad. A good, what is a good word? A good word is necessarily a truthful word. When we remind ourselves about truth, when we remind ourselves about the gospel, what is true about God, his wisdom, his control over all things, his knowledge, that this situation is not outside of God's control, it's not unknown to him, then there's no reason to ever truly have anxiety over a situation. We're never outside of God's control, his kindness, his goodness. But we, when we find ourselves in a difficult situation and we begin to become anxious, we are actually doubting God's goodness. We are doubting his wisdom, his care, his sovereignty. We are responding in unbelief towards his promise to cause all things to work out for our good if we're his children. So instead of trusting in God and his character, his word, instead we become convinced that it's up to us to find a way out of this situation. And some situations are really, really difficult. We, we know that. And when we find ourselves in those situations, we often realize very, very quickly that we are just in over our head. And when we're attempting to seize control over our situation, we can become very well aware that we have a limited means, a limited capacity in ourselves to actually endure the situation, to repair the situation, to deliver ourselves in the situation. And that can lead to despair. Our anxiety is because we're trusting in ourselves and we come face to face with the fact that we're not all that trustworthy. It has nowhere to lead but despair. But when we trust in the Lord, there is no reason to despair. So how is your heart vulnerable? When your heart is not bolstered by the truth of who God is and what he has revealed in his word, your heart is vulnerable. When you're in a difficult situation that tests your limits, 
your heart is vulnerable. Right? Anxiety is a heart-shepherding moment. Can I trust in the Lord in the midst of the situation? Right? We, we sin because we lean on our own understanding. We're not acknowledging Him in all of our ways. We're certainly not acknowledging His sovereignty, His goodness. And when we're anxious, we're actually contending with God for sovereignty over our lives. Do you see your anxiety as a sign of your rejection of God's sovereignty and a desire to grab sovereignty over your life for yourself. It's tempting to think of anxiety as simply as a personality trait rather than a sin of the heart. Man, anxiety is not just the, the opposite of optimism, but rather a symptom of pride, discontentment, and a lack of trust in who God is and what he has said. It is a sign of resident unbelief in our heart. But what's the good news? Look how easily encouraged the anxious heart can be. Your heart may be sinking to depths where the gospel just seems unbelievable. And your hope seems to have vanished. But then notice how the verse ends. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. But a good word makes it glad. Whether that good word is God's word or an encouraging word from a friend that is grounded in truth, our hearts can actually be encouraged. They can be moved to trust in somebody other than ourselves. There is hope. The heart can find hope in a good word. Don't underestimate the effectiveness of truth and encouragement from God's word and from within the body of Christ in helping a wayward heart turn away from anxiety. The next proverb is hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is the tree of life. This is Proverbs 13 verse 12. The word of God, or the word for hope here, is translated in two main ways in the Old Testament. It is translated hope and expectation. And this is consistent with how hope is used in the New Testament. Hope is not something that you're wishing for. I hope to win the lottery. Instead, it is something you are, that you fully expect, that you have assurance and confidence will come to pass. Right? It's an indication that you have placed your trust in a future reality. So for the believer, our hope and our expectation, our trust is in the Lord. And there's no uncertainty about it. And that's why for the believer, biblical hope is always something that is only ever an encouragement for the believer. It further encourages confidence in the future. But it's possible to actually place your hope in the wrong place. And that's what's in view in this passage. Proverbs 13, 12 pictures a hope that is placed in something other than the Lord. And this is like a carrot on a stick. You're hoping for something. There is a carrot that's dangling in front of you and you take some steps towards it and it just seems to be keep getting pulled away and it gets keeps, keeps being put off farther and farther and you never get there. Your hope looks within reach, but you never get it. 
Your hope has been deferred to a future time, hopefully a future time. And at what impact does this deferred hope have on our hearts? When you put your confidence in something that fails to deliver, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's disheartening. And we need to be careful about what people and pursuits we put our hope in. If they fall through, our hearts will be affected. Do you think there's no spiritual impact on you? There will be. Is your hope in finding a new job, a wife, a new home? Our hearts are vulnerable to placing our hope in something other than the Lord. And our hearts are prone to sickness, distress when our hopes are frustrated. And we need to be watchful over our hearts and aware of this vulnerability. As moms and dads, we need to be careful with our children's hearts too. Have you ever said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that tomorrow. But then you forget about it. And at the moment that you do, and the moment it comes out of your mouth and you've forgotten about it, you can be rest assured that your children will remember. And your children will remind you. Right? When you made that promise, your children had no expectation that you wouldn't follow through. So they set their hope foolishly in what their dad said. You know, this is not going to have a positive impact upon their hearts. They shouldn't have put their hope in my words. Yet we need to be careful that what we're say, we say we're going to do, we do, because we recognize this vulnerability in our hearts and in the hearts of our family. And a parent can have that impact upon their children's hearts without even thinking about it. When we put our hope in the wrong things, we are destined for disappointment when those things don't happen. And notice the opposite in this verse. Desire fulfilled is like a tree of life. Just like our hearts can be devastated when we put our hope, when what we put our hope in is not fulfilled, when our hope has been placed in the right place, in the Lord, those desires will actually be realized and it will be a tree of life to our souls. The imagery of the garden is here, a tree that gives life. Right? So we just looked at two Proverbs that reveal ways in which the, hearts, the heart can be vulnerable. Anxiety and deferred hope. Do you know the ways in which your own inner man can be vulnerable before God? When, number four, the fourth question to ask our hearts from the book of Proverbs is, when I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, that is prideful or arrogant, but humility goes before honor. And let's remember what we said earlier. And these are generalizations that are generally true in life. Uh, They're not true in every single situation and every single time. And that's the way the book of Proverbs work. So if you come upon destruction, a life that is spiritually undone, or perhaps a ministry that is undone spiritually, or a relationship that is unraveling, the presence of that kind of destruction is an opportunity to stop and to evaluate the influence that pride possibly had in, in bringing about that destruction because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. 
Proverbs 28, 14 says, How blessed is a man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or softness of our own hearts. What was the condition of my heart prior to calamity? But you must remember that just because you are in the midst of destruction, a relationship that is in trouble, it may not automatically mean that arrogance or hardness of heart was there and causing it. And what is the example in Scripture of a man who was not in sin, but his life was one big calamity? Right, Job. The writer of Job is actually careful to tell us that Job did not sin. His heart seemed to be only soft. But the heart may be hard too. So the presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate that hardness of heart that might have possibly brought about this situation. And notice what is this is contrasted with. And what is that contrasted with? He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. It's contrasted with fearing always. What does that mean in the context of Proverbs? Fearing Yahweh always refers to what? Fear of the Lord. The one who is walking in wisdom. So the existence of trouble or calamity or spiritual unraveling is an opportunity to to back up and an opportunity to evaluate the condition that my heart was in prior to trouble. So let's, let's think pastorally here. Let's think about discipleship. Let's think about Christian friendship. Suppose you come upon a believing friend's life and he or she appears devastated for some reason. What should you do? Number one, first, enter into their distress and care. Cry, sympathize as one who understands how commonplace trouble is. Help them understand that they're not alone. They're living in a broken world in a mixed body full of rebellion and good, and you understand that. And weep with those who are weeping. And this is actually what Job's friends did initially, where they sat there and said nothing. Their heart was broken for what their friend was going through. They started well. Number two, think carefully Because the existence of calamity doesn't automatically mean the believer was foolish. It doesn't automatically mean that they're being disciplined by God. Like Job. Nevertheless, as a good brother, gently, carefully help him or her back up and evaluate the thinking. Help him to evaluate their inner man prior to their calamity. Because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. And he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So it is normal for hardness of heart and pride to quickly usher a man into calamity. So when you see it, step back and evaluate what part did pride and arrogance have in this. But it's not always the cause. And what will be devastating to a person who is in calamity, not because of arrogance... And not because of hardness of heart is if you come in right away and you just make an accusation. You may really miss the mark and you might actually be admonishing someone who actually needs help and encouragement. 
So remember what we've said about the book of Proverbs, general truisms. Don't come in swinging because you see calamity in a life and immediately assume it came out, came out of hardness of heart. But if you find yourself in the midst of calamity, take a step back and consider where has your heart been? Has it been soft and teachable? Or has it been hard and prideful? So what we've been, look, what we've been looking at today are four questions for you to ask yourself on a regular basis about your heart from the book of Proverbs. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment? Number one. Number two, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindfully follow my heart? Number three, do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? And number four, when trouble comes, will I back up and measure the condition of my heart? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to look at our hearts from the book of Proverbs. I pray that you would give us the proper balance that truth will bring to our lives. And I pray that your word would keep us from extremes. I pray for the men listening who might be suspicious of their hearts in ways that are not pleasing to you, but not acknowledging the good that you bring about in us. I also pray that you would keep men from a lack of suspicion where we are convinced there is nothing wrong with our motives and hearts. Help us to be properly weighed by your truth. Help us to not trust in our own hearts and lean on our own understanding, but instead that we would be marked by the trait of always looking away from ourselves and turning to you and trusting in you with all of our heart. What an impact it would make upon my wife and my children if we were those kinds of men in our homes today. What an impact it would have upon our fellowship in ministry to one another in the church. We live in a world where we are told left and right to trust in our own hearts, to fulfill every desire, regardless of what it brings about. Help us to shine in this dark world by being those who don't trust in our own hearts as we go out into this world before those who even now are possibly beginning to understand the folly and the bitterness of trusting in their own hearts. May you grow us as men to bring hope to the lost. And thank you for your great work in our lives. Amen.